Mac Power Users, episode 368, Living in a Tinfoil Hat Society. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside my pal David Sparks. Hi, David. Hey, Katie. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. The show is a the show's a hard one to get started. It is. It is. I'm sure we'll already get uh, comments about our our title here. But um, you know, we we uh, may you live. In, there's an ancient uh, Vulcan proverb. Um, or no, is it a Talaxian proverb? I think. May you always live in interesting times. Um, yeah, the Vul- the Vulcan proverb is it took Nixon to go to China. It did take Nixon to go to China. Um, well, so uh, we are definitely living now in uh, in interesting times, and um, we want to be very careful and say up front that David and I promise we are not going to get political in the show, and uh, we would ask that if you choose to respond to us in your feedback that you don't either, because um, that's just not the type of show that we do. That's not really what we're interested in. And we're really not going to be able to use it in uh, in future feedback show or, or things like that. So uh, we would ask that you be mindful of that in your comments, whether they be to us or to the Facebook group or, or things like that. I mean, honestly, I think we both, Katie and I both are intelligent people with definite thoughts about politics, but we don't feel like this show is the place for us to to mouth off about it. It's, you know, we have our thoughts. Uh, you don't come here to hear them, so we're not going to share them with you. Um, but, 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 but we have these issues right now with um, a lot of people concerned about surveillance and um, the extent of how private are your digital bits, you know, your ones and zeros. I like to think about my father. He was a, a Korean war vet and, um, you know, he was a, a good guy and uh, he had really uh, strong ideas about the right of privacy. I think he ingrained it into me. And like, if someone had told him that the government was going out to your mailbox every day and making copies of everything and then just keeping it in case they ever wanted to, to read it later, he would have gone crazy um, with, and that wasn't possible then. Right. But now we have this world of digital and I'm not just talking about governments. I'm talking about also uh, hackers and other bad influences across the globe. Uh, and we're putting increasingly, uh, we're increasingly putting a lot of our private information into these ones and zeros on the internet. And, uh, we get a lot of emails from people saying, well, how do I protect myself? And that was really what led to this tinfoil hat society show. And, um, it, you know, there's always been this, this running battle and this thing that I know that I have struggled with personally, um, you know, there's there's always the security versus convenience issue because it's always a balance. The more secure you are, the less convenient it's going to be. And where do you strike that balance? But then there's also been the argument of, well, if you don't have anything to hide, why why do you need to go to such great lengths to protect it? And, you know, again, it goes back to, well, I just don't want you looking at my stuff. And also to the other extent, though, how much am I going to inconvenience my life to protect something that really doesn't need protecting too? So, you know, that's, that's interesting. You know, David, you and I were also talking before the show that not only do, do we have certain privacy that of ours that we want to respect, but as attorneys, you know, we have certain confidences that we have to keep. And, and you are not only taking responsibility for your own privacy, but those people that you communicate with. And, and, you know, just to go back to the point of, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, who cares? Um, I think that's a very narrow view. And I think that 
the right to privacy is something that we should cherish. I mean, there's a reason why we put, you know, window blinds and curtains in front of our windows. And and I just think we should have the right of privacy. I worry that as the next generation grows up with this world where everything is so transparent that they won't have any right to privacy. Maybe they won't care. I don't know. But but I've even seen in my own kids, as they get older, they become increasingly concerned about their own privacy. So I'm hoping that, you know, there's something, some good news there. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I, we, you know, I almost put it in the outline and I didn't because I knew if we went off on a tangent, it would be there forever. But it's really one of the things that concerns me about a lot of the social media culture that we are living in now, where people will say and post anything online. And then, you know, maybe a couple of years later, it, it really comes back and haunts them. So, so what we did with this show was we decided we're going to put our tinfoil hats on and say, what can we do? What can a person, you know, a normal person today, we don't, you don't have to be a security expert or a computer programmer, but what can they do to help increase the odds in their favor a little bit along the lines of privacy? And we went pretty deep in the outline. We've got, we've researched a lot of different services. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. Uh, I'll tell you right now, I'm not using everything we're talking about in the show today because that security versus convenience thing, to me, there's some places where I'm willing to be less secure and less private. Um, but I think anybody listening to the show, by the time we get into the show, you're going to have your arms around the options that you have to protect the privacy of yourself and those people who are around you. And you can pick and choose which ones you go with. Uh, maybe you'll use them all and just get the full tinfoil hat club, you know, just go all the way. Or maybe you'll just say only one or two of these things are helpful to me, but even just the one or two may be worth listening. Let's kick this off with one of our favorite things that we like to talk about, and that is two-factor authentication. And I, I put it at the very top of the outline because although it's something we talk about quite a bit on Mac Power users, I am still not seeing widespread adoption of two-factor authentication. And so I think it's one of those things that we need to keep, you know, just hammering and hammering into people until they realize how important two-factor authentication is and how it can save you from so many worlds of hurt. Yeah. And and I think this is one where I know we bang on it routinely. And if, you, if you're already, you know, in the church of two-factor authentication, uh, you can probably safely skip forward about five minutes. That's okay. <laughs> but uh, if you're not, you need to hear this. Maybe they'll learn something else. We have some tips. That's true. That's true. But if not, you really need to listen to this because it's so helpful. And not only, I guess, should you be listening to this for your own behalf, but you should be listening to it for the behalf of your parents and your siblings and your spouses and your children and everybody else in your life and get them on board as well. Um, I, I can tell you just in the last year that I've I've converted my entire family to two-factor authentication and everything. And now they completely get it, where at the beginning they thought it was just a pain. So what is it, Katie? The premise behind two-factor authentication is that um, in single-factor authentication, you'd go to your, your website or your service and you'd log in using just your username and your password. And that is single-factor authentication. You just Your password is what authenticates you. Yeah, so, well, you need two things usually. You need a username and a password. But user, username is often email and easy to guess. Uh, so if they just get the password, they've got the keys to the kingdom. Right. Two-factor authentication is a service that you can optionally enable on a load of different websites and services. And we put a link in the show notes to twofactorauth.org, where you can find a pretty comprehensive list of all the places that use two-factor authentication. And what it allows you to do is to enable a secondary authentication method where when you log in from either a new device or after a set period of time, 
um, maybe not necessarily every login, but if it's been a while or if it's a new device, um, it's going to require you to not only provide your username and password, but also to provide a unique authenticator code. And how do you get that code? It's most common for you to get it in two ways. Um, one way is by text message. And so in order to log in, you're, you're going to have to have not only your username and password, but your text message. So where a code that's sent to your phone, wherever you normally get text messages. Another way that we're seeing more common, and actually my preferred way, um, is to use uh, an authenticator app. Uh, Google has an authenticator app. Authy has an authenticator app. And 1Password now has the built-in authenticator app which means that these codes change on a very frequent basis. Some of them are every minute, some of them are every 30 seconds. And so you look in your app to see what your code is at the time that you log in and you have to input that code. And they're on a rotating cycle so that even if David has my username and password, he's not going to, unless he has my two-factor authentication key synced up with his app, he's not going to know what my specific key is at that particular time to get into that service. So the idea with two-factor authentication is that it's something you know and something you have to get into your service. Yeah, that's a good way to summarize it. And the good news is this thing has really taken off. iCloud, Google, Dropbox, PayPal, Twitter, most of the cloud providers. I mean, a lot of services that you're using on the internet are supporting two-factor authentication. And this is one where that convenience versus security battle is an easy one because it's not that inconvenient to set this up. It's not usually going to require it every time you access it. Like uh, quite often it will do it anytime you access it from a new device or after a certain amount of time. So you're not going to have to do this every time unless you've got an app or you have a setting where you think it's that important. Um, so, you know, please turn this on and we're putting this link in the show notes, twofactorauth.org. Uh, if you tried to use a service recently and it didn't have two-factor authentication, that doesn't mean they don't have it now. So, so take a look at this website and just thumb through it because you'll probably find two or three services in there that you're already using. You didn't realize have two-factor authentication. Now, the argument against it, you're listening to me right now, driving in your car, probably thinking, oh, that's great. But it's going to take me 10 or 15 minutes to set this up with each one of these services, and I just don't have time. And, my, and I would say, put yourself in the headspace of somebody getting into your Dropbox account and downloading all of your whatever, pictures, tax returns, client data, whatever you've got up there. Uh, aren't you going to hate yourself if you didn't spend the 15 minutes to set up two-factor authentication? Because that is really a big, big wall you're putting up between you and the bad guys, and it does not take that long. Well, I was going to say, it doesn't even take 15 minutes. I mean, five, maybe. Well, by the time you get on the website, find the link, whatever. Okay, at the worst, it's 15. But Katie's probably right. It's probably closer to five. Uh, one of the things I would recommend, um, well, Katie, let's talk a little bit more about some of the concerns with uh, two-factor authentication. Yeah, so there are a couple of concerns. One is it takes time to set up. Get over it. Just go do it. Pause the podcast, whatever. We'll sit here and wait for you. Um, so take that one off the table. The other one is, is we always have people write in with, with three, a couple of concerns about two-factor authentication. One is what if I get locked out? What if, what if I don't have access to my authenticator code? The one I hear from people all the time is what if I'm on an airplane and, and need to access my service device? All right. So most of the service, in fact, everyone that I've used 
that has two-factor authentication also gives you a set number of emergency backup codes. I save these codes. I put them in the notes field of 1Password so that I know that I always have them. Um, And so that if you truly don't have access to your phone or you lose your phone and you need to get into your account to either turn off two-factor authentication or bypass two-factor authentication, usually you have a couple of one-time use backup codes that you can use in place of that secondary authentication code to keep yourself from getting locked out. And how many, I mean, do people fly like a whole lot more than I do that they're always on planes trying to access services with two-factor authentication? And if they're trying to access these services, do they not have internet access? I mean, I guess it could happen, but I just, I don't see that as being a huge concern to outweigh the benefits of turning on two-factor authentication. I guess it could happen, but okay. So there you go. If you're on a plane, you can, you can either use the internet on the plane. Most planes have them now or use your backup code. And honestly, if you're a road warrior and you're on, a, on an airplane three or four times a week, and this is a truly a problem for you, let us know how you're dealing with it. I'd like to hear about that. But I think a lot of people are just saying, well, what if I'm on a plane? Okay, really? How often are you on a plane? Maybe you are. Uh, and if not, get one of those passes and get internet on a plane. The, um, the other option, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be so, um, so angry, Katie, today. Uh, another option that or a complaint that people also have is, well, what about text message forwarding now coming to my computer? Doesn't that totally, um, you know, devalue two-factor authentication? Because if somebody has access to my computer that, or my iPad or my iPhone, they're also getting access to two-factor authentication. Well, this is an easy one to fix too. Um, what I tell people is, you should you should set your iPhone and your iPad in such a way that text message previews are turned off from a privacy perspective anyway, so that if someone's just looking at your iPhone and it's locked, that they're not going to get your two-factor authentication code. And what I would tell you is that if somebody already has your iPad or your iPhone or your computer unlocked and is sitting there at your machine, you're probably already hosed anyway. Yeah, it's game over for you already. So yes. So this is the, the Dropbox files are already literally on the computer they're sitting in front of. So Right. So, yes, it's a concern, but that is not your biggest concern at that particular moment. And that's not an excuse not to set up two-factor authentication. Another point I'd add to that is if you go with one of these like Authy or 1Password or Google Authenticators, you solve that problem. Um, and then, but another problem that people always raise, um, if I'm using particularly 1Password, notice that 1Password is very careful in their marketing. They don't call it two-factor authentication. Um, they call it one-time use codes. Is it really two-factor authentication? And truth be told, it's probably not two-factor authentication at that time because for me, I'm going into 1Password, getting my password, and then getting my one-time use code out of 1Password. So it's not two-factor authentication for me because I'm using the exact same device to get both things. Tremendous convenience. And I that is what I personally use. I use 1Password for those authentication codes as often as I can. But I would again point out that if someone is looking at your 1Password account, copying your password and copying your two-factor authentication code out of 1Password, that person has access to your device and access to your 1Password account, and again, host. You know, back in the day when we first started this show so many years ago, we would always say, please don't tell us that you don't have backups. There's just no excuse not to have backups. I think the same would be true now for these cloud services where two-factor authentication is available. I just... I just don't think there's many good excuses not to have this stuff enabled. It doesn't take that long. It increases your productivity, it increases your protection exponentially. I mean, a couple of years ago, remember the Matt Honan hacking that we talked about where they went in and 
got his credit card and then they that got them access to several accounts and they deleted all his Apple photos. They did that not beca- because two-factor authentication wasn't available and they could do it from a different computer in a different country in a different part of the world. And uh, there was nothing stopping them. If you had two-factor authentication turned on, those codes would have come in on Matt's computer and his phone and that would have stopped them dead in their tracks. So please, just just turn this stuff on. Um, speaking of passwords, um, full disclosure, one password is a sponsor of this episode. They did not know we were doing this. Uh, let's talk a minute about passwords. And I don't want to dwell on this too much because I know we've talked about it quite a bit. But um, I have always maintained that having your your first level of security and probably your the single best thing that you can do to protect yourself and your security is to use strong, secure passwords across all of your various sites and services and to not reuse passwords. Amen. Amen. I mean, it, it seems like not a week goes by that I don't read about some hack at some pretty big company where usernames and passwords were disclosed. It seems like every other week I'm reading about it happening at Yahoo. <laughs> but the, uh, it just, you know, it's not even a question of your security at this point. If you use a password on a website, you're trusting that company to secure it. And there are some people in the world that are really smart that are doing everything they can to break into those companies. So every time you, you think you're okay, uh, with the same password in two locations, you're not. And at some point, that is going to land in a database somewhere, and they will go try it. And uh, so please don't. Right. Um, obviously, we've we've been through these, you know, use different passwords, don't recycle or reuse them. I'm not a fan of letting your browser save your passwords. Um, Apple's iCloud keychain has gotten a lot better but uh, a lot of these other browsers that save your passwords are not saving them particularly well encrypted. So not a fan of that. And, and see, that's another security versus convenience issue. So for me, if I'm on a news news group where I just want to have a password to get into the news group and I'll, I'll, I will be okay with um, Safari saving it because when I'm on my iOS device, it's so fast, but my bank passwords, that's not going in there. Um. The other thing is, particularly if you're picking, I, I firmly believe in password manager services because that is really the only way to do this well. So, David, that, of course, prompts the question that everybody asks us, what if my, it, it, aren't I now just creating a honeypot with all of my passwords and all of my service, all of my data in here? And isn't that ripe for being compromised? Yeah, um, we haven't heard of anybody having that happen You'd, you'd have to get through that. First of all, I'd assume that you're using a competent password manager and there are several out there. Yeah. Please don't uh, pick the free one on iTunes. That's made by someone you've never heard of. Yeah. I mean, so you've got a company that's reputable and knows what they're doing and takes your uh, security uh, um, seriously. The, the, the encryption these companies use uh, is very tight. Uh, and let's assume that you've got a good uh, passphrase to get into the password management software. Um, I think you're in pretty good shape. Um, a lot of people ask us particularly about 1Password um, and the type of security that they use. We got asked that question so often. I think the folks at 1Password did too. They actually have a whole website that's directly linked um, from their front page about security and and exactly what they do. So uh, they've got nice little infographics. They've got a cute little bear with an umbrella. Um 
they have a lot of detail that I don't even understand. And then they've got a whole white paper. If So if you want to know how that works, um, I, I would refer you to that website with all the details you ever could want to know and more um, on their website. And I'm not trying to, this is editorial. I mean, we're not being paid to say this, uh, but we are, we're both one password users. We were before they were a sponsor. Someday they'll stop being a sponsor and we'll continue to use it, I would guess. Um, but the, uh, there's other, uh, you know, I think LastPass is one we've talked about in the show. There's some other reputable companies out there. Um, I don't want you to, uh, to feel like you have to go one place, but please go someplace <laughs> where they know what they're doing and, and use one of these because it's so much better. And just the fact that they help you create strong and unique passwords is, is a big help because I think there's a, a real kind of mental challenge when you go to a website and they're like, okay, give me a new password. It's really easy in your brain to just pick your standard password. Uh, whereas if you've got a, a an application solve where you push one button and it makes something that's infinitely better for you uh, to use that. You you recommend doing it every time the uh, the time changes and you change your smoke detector batteries, right? Um, yeah, I, I, that's the way I do it. That way I know I do it twice a year. But, you know, sometimes I do it because I get panicked. I, re- I just read recently an article about, um, I forget, one of the large um, uh, secure socket um, Yahoo company. No, it wasn't, it wasn't Yahoo, but it was one where they have, uh, uh, I think it was one of the pay services where they, they do payment processing. So a bunch of other companies that tie into their payment processing was, uh, you know, was you were basically giving up your password to several different websites based on a hack that they had internally. And it freaked me out. So I went and changed all my passwords again. Anyway, it's really not that hard to do if you have a good password manager. That's another reason to have a password manager, frankly, you can see the list of the ones that are most important to you. You can generate new passwords. You can go to the links and change them. Are you talking about the recent cloud? Yeah, you know, I should have put it in the show notes. And this has happened within the last two weeks, and I don't remember. So I'll, maybe while we're talking later, I'll go look up the link. I think it's Cloudfair. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so please be on the lookout. Have some way to do it. Now, if you don't want to do a password manager, roll your own. That's There's ways to do that. But be thorough and be secure. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by MindNode, delightful mind mapping. You can find it at mindnode.com. We sure are happy to have MindNode as a sponsor of the Mac Power Users. I am a big fan of their application and use it daily. MindNode is mind mapping done right. The application brings you powerful tools and a delightful and easy to use interface. It's really easy to pick this application up and start using it. And because MindNode works on the Mac, the iPhone, and the iPad, and everything syncs between itself so easily, it's a great tool for planning. I consider it an essential tool in my productivity tool belt. Whenever I'm planning a project, I love having MyNote available to start adding ideas to and start growing the idea. I use this for planning presentations, big papers and reports, uh, anything that's going to require some project planning and thought on my behalf. I just let my subconscious mind noodle on these ideas and I just pull my iPhone out of my pocket and add a note in my note whenever a thought occurs to me or just a separate window on my Mac or my iPad. Something you may not know about my note, however, is that it has a lot of powerful task support. Using my note, you can create and manage tasks. First, you can create a task list right inside my note. All you have to do is select a group of nodes and flip one switch, and then my node adds uh, checkbox tabs next to each item in the list. So you can just go through and check it off right inside my node. 
This is great for a simple packing list or just a list of things to get done on an existing MyNode. But if that's not powerful enough for you, MyNode also has the ability to share those tasks. You can share it out to MyMyNode, which is a web service they have. You can export that list to Apple Reminders, or you can even share it to OmniFocus. One of my pro tips I use is while I'm building out a MyNode for a big project, I may start building the OmniFocus task list on a separate node right inside that MyNode. So as I'm getting close to finishing the mind map and kind of getting my thoughts straight about what I want to do with the project, I'll just export that node with all the OmniFocus tasks into OmniFocus, and I'm already off to the races. Like I said earlier, MyNode is a application that's easy to pick up, but it does run deep, and it's got some great features in there to make your life easier as you plan and execute big projects. So go check out MyNode at MyNode.com. Let them know you heard about it from the Mac Power users. You won't regret it. It's a great app. And thank you, MyNode, for supporting the Mac Power users. Okay, Katie, what about cloud services? Well, you know, there's, I think people are starting to get a little uh, more aware of things that they put in cloud services. Cloud services are great things. Um, I'm a huge Dropbox user. I, I love Google Drive. Um, but especially in, as we're becoming more security conscious, we're becoming more aware that everything that we put in a cloud service um, has the potential to be compromised, not just by a hack or, or by uh, a nefarious employee or by, you know, any of these other things, but, you know, it's, it's potential accessible by subpoena. It's, I mean, there, anything that you put in a cloud service is susceptible to somebody else looking at it. Um, and unless that cloud service or you have put particular security precautions in place. Yeah, you don't you don't know where those servers are located. So even though, you know, you've got a cloud service in country A, for all you know, the actual data is stored in country B, which could have a completely different set of laws than you expect. Um, you don't know what the physical security is on that. Uh, and like Katie said, in addition to all the risks from the bad guys, we also have uh, government uh, inc- uh, requests and subpoenas and different methods they use all over the the planet to get access to the data. So uh, I think you need to keep that in the back of your mind as you put data in the cloud and be a little bit mindful of what you're going to store there. And be aware of the terms of service. I would check those out now for any cloud service that that you put up there. And anything that you really don't want somebody to see, I think you need to consider encrypting before you put up there. And there are different ways to encrypt. Like on the Mac, you can make a sparse disk image where you can set your own encryption locally, save it, and then put it up in the cloud and then you're good. Uh, There's also some third-party services that do encryption on services like Dropbox. Um, So, you know, there's different ways you can go about skinning that cat, but um, all of them involve, once again, an intrusion on your convenience over security. So (laughs) you just kind of have to think about what's important, like my gas bill, you know, how much is my paying for my fireplace every month, my gas fireplace, I don't really care. You know, so I'm not going to encrypt that before I put it up on a cloud service. Something else, though, my tax return, that probably gets encrypted. Yeah, all of of my uh, financial related stuff is in the secure disk image before it goes up on Dropbox. Yeah, so that makes it less available to you. Um, But it does give you, it gives you access to it via cloud storage. And so long as you know your password, once you download it, you've got the, the full thing there. Well, and some of these things, especially if you're encrypting, you have to be aware of uh, compatibility and, and cross-platform, especially if you're working in a Mac versus a PC world. Uh, sparse disk image that you encrypt is going to be fine for your Mac. You're not going to be open that on your iPhone or on your PC, though. 
Yeah, but there are services like TrueCrypt and some other options out there um, that allow you to do that. But I think the main thing, the main point with cloud services is that you don't have control over what goes up there. Well, no, you, you have control over what goes up there. You just don't have control necessarily with what happens to it after it's up there. I misspoke. You you don't have control of the ones and zeros once you put them in the cloud. And honestly, I'm not sure you have control over them even after you pull them down off the cloud. Oh, yeah, because there could be backup copies. There could be other copies. Some You never know what's happened to it after it's gone up there. Yeah, I, I, my uh, my test for this is the uh, the video field guides. They're like three gigabyte files, and sometimes I put them up on Dropbox to deal with particular problems. And I always find it funny after I've deleted it from Dropbox, and then I re-upload it, and it uploads in like two seconds, a three gigabyte file. Uh, that tells me somewhere in Dropbox, there's a copy of that video field guide. <laughs> and Dropbox was smart enough to say, oh, we already have this. You don't need to give it to us. Thank you. We'll just re-enable it. Well, somebody else may be storing their copy of the video field guide up there. Or it may not have quite been deleted yet through caching, but. Yeah, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm, I'm serving them all for you, David. It's fine. Don't worry. I've got them in my public folder with, with links strategically placed. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, you know, it's just, it is a little creepy when you realize, oh yeah, okay. So even though I thought I deleted this file that I was somewhat secure, it's not. Um, so just be a buyer beware a little bit with the cloud services. That's all. And And I'm not stopping using cloud services. I haven't even gone to the length of using some of these third-party encryption tools, but um, I do. I am aware of it, and I hope you, dear listener, are as well. Well, and I need to read more about this, and I, I won't dive too much in the law now, but I just saw one of my professional magazines um, sent through an article about a recent case where um, somebody used a cloud service to share um, images and documents with their attorney or, or with somebody else, and then it ultimately got forwarded to the attorney. Uh, and those were all deemed discoverable uh, because they put them in a publicly shared, you know, cloud drive. That's a whole nother show about lawyers and technology and how how crazy things are. And and honestly, probably not our show. Yes, <laughs> never our show. But but one I would be interested in listening to, nevertheless. So, all right. Um, well. We could go a lot more in depth probably on specific cloud services, but I think if we do, we'll we'll be here all night and it's kind of beyond the scope of what we want to go through here. But I think the big ones are be aware of the terms of service, be aware of how things are encrypted and, and who has access and um, when in doubt, encrypt yourself. Yeah, when in doubt, either don't put it there or encrypt it first. So a little stickier wicket to, to tackle is um, is email. Because even though we we think and we deal with email differently, um, email for the most email is still very much a cloud based uh, service. We we interact with it differently sometimes, but um, e- when you send and receive an email, you, that email is not on your computer. That email for most people is not even in your a server in your office. You know, it, it's bouncing across multiple servers and lives in different places, mostly on third party cloud service providers. Yeah, ages ago, ages ago, we did a show on email where I talked about the various email technologies. And, you know, originally it started out with POP, where the, the message was delivered to your inbox, which is why you could never get it on your um, two devices, because once it was downloaded, it wasn't on the server anymore. And that was, uh, it made sense when everybody had one device, but now everybody has multiple devices and IMAP is far superior. But, but uh, you, you have it. On IMAP, it means that message is stored on a server. So I remember getting feedback way back on our show years ago from someone who said, yeah, I still use POP because I just don't want to leave the messages on the server. 
And I'm like, well, I can understand why. Yes, but those messages have been on the server. They're probably cached on the server. They're probably still on the server somewhere. Yeah. After all these years, the messages that person was thinking about are very likely on a backup or a, a server um, cache somewhere. Okay. So, so the point is when you send an email, there's a couple issues I want to talk about. The first is uh, what we were just saying. Uh, the, the, interme- the internet acts as an intermediary on an email message. So once I send it, it goes up to the internet. And once you retrieve it, it stays in the internet. So it knows whether you put it in your archive folder, your deleted folder or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of people, you know, with access to the internet and potentially getting access to that email as we have read recently. Um, so you've, you've got that problem. The second problem with email is that there is a recipient to an email and no matter how secure your methods are for uh, keeping your secrets and keeping your data secure, you don't know what the other person has done. What if the person you're sending the email to has a password that is password, you know, the word password, um, what if they have uh, been opening uh, links in their email from, you know, uh, Siberian princes that want you to <laughs> get a million dollars and they've basically forfeited access to their computer? Um, you just don't know what the recipient is doing. And uh, if you have multiple recipients, the problem becomes exponentially worse. So, so there's a lot of ways you can get in trouble with email that aren't your fault. So what are some steps you can take to avoid it? Well, somebody told me once, don't ever send anything through email that you don't want to see on the front page of the New York Times. I think that was me. Was that was that you? Okay, that that sounds familiar. Well, that's that's number one. That's good advice. I think it still holds. Um, the other things, I think you need to be generally aware of your email service provider and and how things work. Um, there are probably some email service providers that have better terms of service and privacy policies than than others. Um, one that you had posted a link to was uh, Proton Mail. Yeah, that's kind of like the uh, that's the serious option if you're seriously interested interested in privacy. Let's work our way up to that though. I mean, st- starting you know the question is is the message encrypted in transit? You know, and there's settings you can do with your email services. They've gotten a lot better over the years about. Uh, basic encryption in the email applications. Apple Mail is actually very good at email encryption. If you want to get a security certificate from a third-party provider, you can enable it in Apple Mail, and you can have some significant encryption on your messages. It's a little bit of a pain. Uh, It can also be a pain with your recipients if it's not set up right, and um, uh, that is an option for you out there, and I will just say go check it out if you're interested in this. Um, But but another way to go about it is, is ProtonMail. And, and when we're talking about email servers, the same thing, I'm sorry, when we're talking about cloud servers being different countries, the same thing applies to email servers. So you don't know where the servers are and what laws are applied. So that's where ProtonMail comes in. You know, ProtonMail is based entirely in Switzerland. And the company's whole reason for existence is email security. So, you know, if you had the whiteboard at Apple about what's the most important thing about Apple Mail, Security is on the list, but it is not number one. I guarantee you. Uh, with ProtonMail, it's number one. You know, so much so that they set the servers up and the company up in a country that has laws that makes it pretty hard for people to get legal access to your email. Um, ProtonMail, though, has got has done their best to bring uh, convenience along with their security. They have a custom iOS app that you can get, and it works with two layers of encryption. I've um. I've been exploring this for some things that I do on the day job where I have something that's very important and I want very much to be encrypted. 
as a as a potential option is it like not that i'd use it for everyday mail but i would use it for those most serious ones they have two layers of encryption uh, you can even set an email expiration date so it gets wiped out you know it has kind of like the old uh spy movies where the message ignites what was that mission impossible remember that yes yes so you have like a mission impossible email that that will literally burst into digital flames at some point um, they even have a setting where the recipient opens the message in a browser window, an encrypted browser window. So the message never makes it into their mail application. So you don't, that kind of solves that problem of, well, what if they have lousy security on their PC? Well, it's not going to be stored on their PC. So you're fine. Um, they have a free plan that is 150 messages per month. And this is where I was thinking about setting this up. I'm thinking, well, why don't I just have this as something in my pocket? you know, like secure Sparks law or something like that. And um, when I have a very important, very secure message, I use it uh, for, and the plans get, um, you know, get more volume and treat it as your everyday mail server. Uh, and it's not too expensive. I think it was something like 50 euros for a year to have, a, you know, a decent sized plan where you could do all your email through it. So um, I guess my point is if you really are concerned about security with email and you want to get the big boy solution, I would, I would go with proton mail. Well, if you don't want to go quite that far there, there are still ways that you can encrypt your, your email and Apple mail. Um, and, and I, I want to go back a little bit cause you brushed over it in like 15 seconds, but basically what that involves is you have to obtain the certificate um, and, and there are some sites that offer them for free. There are sites that you have to pay for, you know, 20 bucks a year to things like that to get your security certificate that just basically says, hi, I'm David Sparks. I'm Katie Floyd. These are, these are who I am. And you're basically authenticating who you are. Um, and then that certificate lives in your Apple keychain. Um, and that will give you the ability to digitally sign your email so that when you send an email, um, Apple Mail will certify that, yes, this email is from Katie Floyd. It is from David Sparks. Um, but then also optionally have the ability um, to encrypt that email when you send somebody, um, provided that that person has your public key, which they will if you send it to them or you send them an email, I think, before when they use Apple Mail. Um, it is it is kind of a complicated process. I'm I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a Mac 911 article that is older but but still valid um, that goes through a pretty simple process of of how to set it up and do it. Um, it it's not expensive, but it is kind of a hassle, um, and it, it's it's something that has to be maintained typically every year for um, you know keys that you purchase, and even less than that, I think some of the free keys have to be maintained every, you know, three or six months. Uh, they have to be updated and, you know, getting them on iOS is still kind of a pain too, but, but doable. Yeah. And the idea of the public versus the private key is basically when you set up for one of these services, you have two keys, the private key is the one you keep on your side, which allows you to encrypt the email. And then the public key is the way they can unencrypt it on their end. And so you need both, and that's where it gets confusing for people because you've got to get the other piece out into the world for your recipients. But it's doable. I, I, you know what I should do is go back and reset one of these again. I, it's been a year or so since I've done it. I just need to go set it up again and maybe walk through it again. It's on the show. Maybe we'll do that on the feedback when we get around to the subject again because I feel like I'm just kind of talking around it a little bit because it's been too long since I've I've set it up. Um, actually, Allison Sheridan, uh, who runs the No Silicast, 
has a, uh, a tutorial on how to sign up for a free certificate at Start SSL. I'll have to investigate to see whether this is um, whether this is still any good because you know sometimes these things come and go. But if it is, I'll put it in the show notes as well. I want to take a break and thank our longtime sponsor, 1Password, for their continued support of the show. Now, we have already talked about 1Password in this episode, and I just want to be clear that everything that we've said about 1Password before has been editorial content. This is a paid advertisement. But to be honest with you, I would talk about 1Password regardless of whether or not they paid me. But don't tell them that because we really do like them continuing to be a sponsor. Uh, 1Password is my personal password solution of choice, and I truly do believe in the value of password managers like 1Password. I want to talk a little bit specifically about the Watchtower feature of 1Password. So Watchtower is a feature that will watch over your passwords and let you know when there's something that you probably need to look into. Specifically, we talked a little bit about the show about Cloudflare, or maybe we will talk about it. Stay tuned. Uh, but Cloudflare is a large internet technology provider that's used by a lot of different websites around the world. And a couple of weeks ago, they announced a vulnerability that potentially affected all of their clients. However, 1Password data was entirely safe during this time and remains safe today. 1Password has designed multiple layers of encryption, and your data is encrypted before it ever leaves your computer. In fact, 1Password anticipated one day when the HTTPS SLTLS layers might fail, so they weren't worried when that day came. And if you're interested in learning more about this, I suggest you head over to 1Password website and take a look at their blog post about it. What Watchtower does is a feature built into 1Password to find passwords that you might need to change. Watchtower tells you about password breaches and other security problems on websites that you have saved in 1Password. It's included in both the Mac and iOS version and with every 1Password subscription. And 1Password team goes in and when they hear of a new security breach, they update Watchtower. So Watchtower will tell you when sites were vulnerable and need to be affected. So you'll see a little security audit tab and 1Password, and Watchtower will warn you when sites that you have logins to have been compromised. So if you haven't, go check out Watchtower, and you may be surprised what's in there. The 1Password team continually monitors and updates Watchtower as security breaches are reported, so you know can go in and change your passwords right away. And they do all this without ever knowing the websites that you have saved in 1Password. 1Password downloads the Watchtower information to check against your websites on your devices. So head on over to onepasswordcom slash MPU in all caps to get a special offer on 1Password and learn more about all of the other features in 1Password and how to up your security game. Thanks 1Password for your continued support of MacPower users. However, email is not the only way we communicate anymore. A lot of people are communicating a significant conversations through messaging. And um, what do you think about security on your messaging, Katie? Um, I think it's important. You know, um, iMessage to some degree is encrypted, although there was a little bit of a hoopla last year about uh, Maybe some information that Apple keeps regarding uh, iMessages and, and how long they keep it and why they keep it. But um, I feel pretty secure using iMessage. And uh, for me, that probably falls into the realm of good enough. But there are lots of secure message servers out there. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes to um, 
think it's the EFF who did this. Uh, yeah, it's the EFF who um, rates all of the various messaging services and, and gives them a scorecard. And iMessage and FaceTime rated pretty high, but it's... Um, it's it's an issue because um, I guess you know Apple. Although Steve Jobs did get up on stage at one point and say we're going to open source this, they never did. Yeah, I, I'm not sure anybody else at Apple knew he was going to say that. No, I don't think they did. <laughs> the um, I I yeah, I always think about kind of a you know the lawyer war story. Several years ago, I had a case that involved some very disputed facts, and my client said you know the sky was blue, and the other guy said the sky was purple, and. And I was able to subpoena his text records because everybody told me he was texting that the sky was blue at the time. And and I was able to get those records. And I had just, you know, great evidence that the guy said the sky was blue. Um, so, you know, this is a new thing. I mean, when, when text messaging first started, nothing was encrypted. And over the last several years, there's been a flurry of activity with these services racing to enable encryption. Now there's a couple different kinds of ways they have encryption. First is the, when the message is sent, you know, over the air encryption, you know, when you push the button to the time it gets to the server, but increasingly these companies are doing the encryption on their servers as well. Um, There's different companies with different philosophies. Apple, one of the reasons I like Apple is that they take uh, privacy uh, seriously. And and I think they consider it almost like a marketing point for them that they can't read your iMessages the way they set it up. Even they don't have the ability to read them, which gives them uh, more security than other competitors. Now, if you go to that EFF link that Katie talked about earlier, you're going to see that there's some services like Signal that are even more secure than iMessage. But um, generally, you know, the idea is how important is it to you? I think everybody should have a legitimate interest in having their text messages um, encrypted from the companies when they're sitting on the server. So I think that's a good, a good bottom line. All that being said, when I was working on this part of the outline, in the back of my head, I started thinking about, well, where, where do I do most of my messaging these days? I do a lot of my messaging in Slack. Slack has replaced iMessage for me in a lot of ways, especially in some of my work-related things. I've got um, like the stuff we do with Relay, and I've got Slack channels for some other pieces of my life. and those are not necessarily that secure. I mean, they, they don't have the same rigor uh, applied to them that a service like iMessage or Signal does. In fact... By not necessarily secure, you mean absolutely not at all secure? Well, I I, I don't think you could say that. There's a password to get in and there, there's a certain amount of encryption involved, but it's not the same thing. They're logging messages. Uh, I think if there was a subpoena there, they would be able to probably get quite a bit out of it. Um, so, you know, that got me thinking about Slack and is this something that I want to do? We, I think we talked about on a recent episode of the free agents, how I was thinking about setting up a Slack channel. No, it was on this show when we had, um, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll set up a Slack channel for my law practice. And, and this got me thinking, no, that's a bad idea. I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't know. I, don't, I, I think it's a bad idea for so many reasons other than, than just the security issue, but You'll have to make that decision to to see whether something you want to do. Well, the but, security is is a killer for me. But I mean, uh, from a customer service standpoint, for me, it makes sense when I represent a ton of um, IT companies and app developers who spend all day in Slack. And, and also, just to follow up on that point, this is totally unrelated. Uh, in order to get um, the the hang up I had was I don't want a general room. I want people to be able to come in and just sit in one access room. It requires a paid account at a level that I wasn't willing to go. So. That's another reason why it didn't work out. 
Okay. Um, so messaging, I would say that messaging is in better shape than it has been in a long time in terms of security. The other thing we talk about often on MPU, but we've never really gone on a whole lot of detail is a VPN. So for starters, what, what is a VPN? It stands for virtual private network. Um, and it is a way of disguising your IP and encrypting all of your internet traffic so that people can't see what you're, you're viewing and doing online. I, I kind of liken it when I'm oversimplifying it, um, you know, to basically creating a, a tunnel. You know, if, if think of, you think of a VPN like a straw and your internet traffic is going through it. So it's, it's protecting, um, what, Maybe straws a bad analogy because that kind of makes you think of a constricted work, you know, bandwidth, which it kind of is a little bit. But yeah, it is. Yeah, but <laughs> it's typically not that bad. Um, Interestingly, though, we we only talk about this generally in terms of public Wi-Fi access. I was thinking about it when I was looking at these notes. Is we always talk about this when you're at the Starbucks, how good VPN is because you know using the public Wi-Fi at Starbucks is just a bad idea on so many levels. But VPN is so much more. I mean, you, if you're truly wearing a tinfoil hat, VPN can be used at your home to give you that same type of protection. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I'll just I'll just use my cellular data connection and it's fine. Um, well, do you not think that your ISP has access to whatever you're looking at? And, and so that's the big thing is that somebody is going to have access to your data and to your browsing history. It, it could be your ISP. It could be AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile or whoever your, your provider is that, that you're using for that cellular connection. Um, it could be your home ISP, whether it's you know Comcast or Cox or, or any of those other ISPs. Um, or it could be the sketchy people at Starbucks if you're just browsing on the Starbucks Wi-Fi. Or the other thing to remember is that Although that VPN is between you and what you're viewing, they're between you. So whoever's running that VPN could also, you know, intercept and, and see what you're doing. So it's very important that you you choose your VPN provider carefully. Yes. So uh, so one of the downsides of VPN is speed. Uh, you know, I was looking at reviews of different VPN sites as we we're getting ready to record this show, and almost every review always deals with two questions. How secure is it and how much of a bottleneck is it? How much does it slow you down? Um, so sometimes you will be making the trade-off. If you want ultra secure VPN, everything's going to run a little bit slower. Well, and it is also another buffer filter something between you and whatever you're connecting to and whatever you're going to. So it, there, there is going to be a, an, another jump or another hop or another delay in there. So that being said, Katie, um, which which VPN are you using these days? I've I've used a couple. Um, right now, I'm using primarily Cloak. I I like that. Um, one of the big reasons I use Cloak is because it has that auto. It has a, a feature that not many I've seen have for auto protect functionality. So I have certain Wi-Fi networks that I've set as safe, and certain Wi-Fi networks that um, well anything else that's not set as safe is an unknown. So if I walk into Starbucks or if I walk into something else and my phone jumps on that, Cloak is going to automatically start securing my connection. And I like Cloak because it has both Mac and iOS um, components and I pay one price a month and, and it, you know, all of my stuff uses that same, uh, you know, data. I've, I've got a Cloak mini plan, which gives me a pretty small bucket of data every month which is usually enough for me to get by. But when I travel, I then usually buy a, um, a pass, which, which will um, give me a, a lot more data. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, these are usually measured in, in bits. You know, how many ones and zeros are you going to cram through the straw before you have to pay more money? Uh, so most of these services are on that basis. And and most of the ones that we're going to talk about, they're all paid. Uh, yeah, I know there's some free VPN services out there, but this kind of gets back to then Katie was saying, well, do you warning, know? Warning, warning. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you know who owns the straw at that point? <laughs> because you might be in trouble. Years ago, we had a sponsoring show, Tunnel Bear, that I think is very good. That's very simple, easy setup. And I just kept using them. And I've been using them for years. Uh, however, in the last couple months, because Katie brought up Cloak again on the Mac Power users two or three months ago, I'm like, well, you know what? I got to try Cloak out. And you know what? I'm now on the Cloak bandwagon. I'm with you, Katie. It's a good good service. Um, I will tell you, I like TunnelBear a lot, and I recommend it very frequently, at um, particularly to attorney functions that I speak at. I'm doing that a lot more frequently. And the reason that I really like TunnelBear is it is cross-platform. They have Mac, iOS, Android, and Windows so you can get one TunnelBear subscription that if you live in a cross-platform world will work on everything. I like TunnelBear because it is super simple. It's you push a big button and it's on and you t- push a big button again and it's off. Um, and they have cute little bears. So what's not to love about that? The simplicity thing, though, is the real winner. It is super easy. Like if, Or if you just want to say, uh, pretend that you're in Canada instead of the U.S. for, you know, accessing some video online or something. It, it just makes it really easy to do stuff like that. Yeah, when I was uh, not at my own firm, uh, for whatever reason, um, my um, my firm's uh, firewall was set to block certain types of streaming services, and I could never watch Apple Keynotes at the office. Maybe that was intentional. Maybe they, I mean, I can't imagine that they specifically blocked Apple Keynotes. I'm sure they just blocked, you know, streaming video services because they didn't want people on the internet. Yeah, Apple hosts those through some of the third-party companies, which are probably on the list. Right, and so I was like, so I would just pop on my VPN and be like, all right, now I'm just going to watch this. Just now, if you get fired because of this, don't blame us. You're on your Yes, own. yes. <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm not making an endorsement. I'm just saying it can work. Um, many of these VPNs, you should know, just while we're still kind of on the same subject, um, do have terms of service or other restrictions that aren't going to let you um, violate other terms of services. So if you're trying to use these VPNs, you know, to bypass um, country restrictions with Netflix or other providers, you may find that while that has worked in the past, it may not work anymore because um, providers are getting more uh, attuned to that. And sometimes that's a violation of the VPNs terms of service, just because people are putting so much data through them doing that. The other thing is you'll typically find that, um, People were using VPNs for heavy use of uh, file sharing services for perhaps legal or not so legal use. Um, and sometimes a lot that is a violation of the VPN's terms of service as well. So just be aware of that. And some VPNs block certain file sharing services. So VPNs good for securing your privacy, not so much for um, those types of things. Uh, two other uh, VPNs that I, I want to talk about where people can you know make their own VPN um, Apple server, if you're running Mac OS X server, has a built-in VPN component. So you can, if you have an always-on Mac at your house that you're running OS X server on, you can create your own VPN, which for some people may be worth the price of admission alone. Now, that's going to basically VPN you back to your own home internet service, which has to be pretty good to begin with. But that's that can be a good way to do it because most people feel like they're browsing pretty securely on their own home VPN service. Um, and another, a lot of browsers now 
are uh, building in VPN. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. A lot of um, routers now are building in VPN services. Um, my Synology disk station has um, a VPN service built in. So even if I'm not running Mac OS X server, my Synology is always on at my house. So I can, if I wasn't using a service like Cloak, I could VPN to my Synology. And Synology has a really nice router that they've just introduced. Um, if you don't need one of these mesh networks and are just looking for a really nice router, uh, the Synology router is one that's worth taking a look at. And it has a built-in VPN uh, service. So um, it's, it gives you that extra bang for your buck. Uh, I was looking at um, various review sites about uh, VPN networks. And one that came up repeatedly that I have not used, so this is not really an endorsement so much as uh, something you might want to look at, is IPVanish. And this is one that is, you know, once again, on the mythical whiteboard, security is number one for IPVanish, as the name implies. One of the things they do is they have what they call multi-hop connections in their VPN, where, have you ever seen the movies where you see, oh, first the thing started here, then it went to there, then what, you know, they see on the map the thing jumping around the globe before it lands in your inbox. Yeah, I always just thought that was a fake movie thing. Yeah, well, apparently it's not because they do it. Um, they do it with this IP vanish, but apparently it also has a, a pretty significant speed hit if you do that. So one of the reviews called it a non-trivial speed penalty. So I guess if security is super important to you, if you have extra layers of that tinfoil on, you might want to check out IP vanish. Uh, they have iOS a uh, access through a third-party app. They don't have their own app. You know, it, to me, I, a lot of this is I do want it to be simple. And I feel like that uh, just getting into the basics of this stuff, something like Cloak or Tunnel Bear, you are so much further ahead of the game than you are without it that it's okay. You know, I think you're probably good with one of those services. And they're not, you know, just to give you an idea, they aren't that expensive. Like Katie said, now the the lowest tier cloak, uh, what are you, are you paying a monthly fee to cloak, Katie? A couple bucks a month. Yeah, I mean, it's almost nothing. And and you can always bump it up on a trip. So just to have that account, it it is not that much money. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's well worth it. All right. Anything else on VPNs? If you've, if you've not used one yet, please try one. You'll see how it really is not. This is not a high barrier. I think people hear about VPN and they're um, they're intimidated by it. And it's not, especially with one of these that have their own built in app and you just sign up. It It, it is literally as easy as opening an app and flipping a switch. And now your Internet just got secure. Or not, if you have one of the VPNs that will auto turn on. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Eero. Blanket your home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi and use the offer code MPU for free overnight shipping. As a geek, I really love it when we see technology make a big jump. For instance, when we saw spinning disks turn into SSDs, everything got faster and easier to use. Well, we've had a similar move in the home Wi-Fi space, and that was brought to you by Eero. Wi-Fi is no longer just for our computers. Everything from our speakers to our thermostats to our light bulbs work on Wi-Fi these days. And we're now more dependent than ever on reliable, fast Wi-Fi in our homes. The problem is that Wi-Fi for a long time has been broken. Connections are inconsistent, they're slow, they're unresponsive. And fixing these problems with the last generation of technology really wasn't possible. Eero solves that problem for your home. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. Eero isn't just an extender. 
Each Eero has two radios inside, keeping your connections fast and everything in sync. This is all done on one network name. You just download the Eero app on your iOS or Android device and it'll walk you through each step of the process. It's quick, easy, and painless. The Eero app also lets you manage your network from the palm of your hand. So you'll know how many devices are connected at any given point, as well as the internet speed that you're getting from your service provider. I was a big believer in the Apple products. I had Apple airports. I even tried to extend them with a separate Apple airport. And I was always having trouble with Wi-Fi, especially as we were adding more devices to our house. When I installed the Eros, they solved the problem for me. And I could not imagine going back. In addition to being easy to manage, the Wi-Fi coverage in my house is way better with these Eros. Uh, before, my daughters would end up using our cellular data because their bedrooms were too far away from the base station. That never happens anymore. I'm also able to get solid Wi-Fi in my backyard. So if I want to sit out on a nice day on the couch in my backyard and write contracts, the Eros got me covered. I'm super happy with this product, and I think you will be too. Now, the average house in the U.S. is easily covered by two or three Eros. So a three-pack is a good starting point. But if you live in a large space and need more, you can add up to 10 in total. And because of their 30-day money-back guarantee, you can always return one of your Eros if you end up not needing it. If you want to find out more about the Eero and get one for yourself, just go to Eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com. And just because you listen to the show, you'll get free overnight shipping. Just select overnight shipping when you go to checkout and enter the code MPU. Let them know you heard about it on the Mac Power Users. So thanks so much to Eero for supporting the show and all of Relay FM. And honestly, thank you, Eero, for making Wi-Fi in my house work so great. Okay, so we talked about VPN, but we really haven't talked about using the internet. I mean, that's something that everybody does. And I'm not sure everybody appreciates how many ways there are for other people to snoop on what you're doing. Well, David, I could uh, I could just use private browsing, right? And then I'm all safe and secure and nobody can see anything, right? Yeah, I was going to say I hate that so much because it's so misleading. You know, they, um, uh, so I think they, what do they, they have a different name for it in Chrome. It's like... Uh, Incognito mode. Incognito, yeah. And uh, on Safari, it's private browsing. And the idea is, oh, if I just throw the switch, then nobody will know what I'm doing. Well, I guess that's the one to um, to keep your other coworkers and family members from finding out what you were doing on the internet, because basically it stops tracking history and and I believe it stops saving cookies and a couple things like that. But but what you don't realize is there's a whole other world out there that's connected when you're hooking up to the internet, starting with your your um, your IP uh, network su- supplier. I mean, whoever's giving you the access to the internet, um, you're going to have um, a, a log with them. So if you turn on private browsing and you're accessing the internet through your cable network, um, that has no effect on the cable network's monitoring of what you're doing on the internet. Zero. And likewise, if if you are in a managed network of some kind, if you're browsing, you know, oh, I'm 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 sitting at the office and I'm going to turn on private browsing so then I can go look at whatever I want. Not so much. Uh, probably anybody anybody who's uh, managing your network is going to be able to see and, and and track your logs and see what you're doing as well. And you're also not keeping out the people on the internet and the websites you're on that keep track of who you are and what you're doing on their websites. You know, everybody's had the experience. You go on, look on to buy something. I mean, uh, yeah, I I bought a bunch of shirts from uh, LL Bean last week. Uh, They were they were on sale and uh, picked up uh, some. I really, really like their um, they've got these professional shirts that are that are no iron. So there you go. And um, 
I started seeing as for L.L. Bean everywhere I went on the Internet. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Somebody got you. So, uh, you know, private browsing is not private. I guess that's where we start. Private browsing is a way to not let other people that have access to your computer know what you're up to. But that's the extent of it. No more. Yeah, it's basically keeping things from your spouse or significant other on your and unless they happen to be administering your network. So note to future spouse, it's not a way to keep your browsing from me. There you go. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, the Katie is going to have full control of that network. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, one of the things you mentioned is it's not private from all of these trackers online, and people are starting to get a little fed up with being tracked everywhere that they go online because it's a little bit scary when you you think about how much data is out there um, just based on the websites we visit, our buying habits, and how using these ad networks, advertisers can um, can track us from website to website to website, see where we're going to see what we're browsing and you know figure out where they can get the most bang from our buck. I mean, it, it, I have seen surveys that says, you know, Google to a certain degree of accuracy can can identify, although they can't maybe identify who you are by an individual person's name, but so much information about you based on your browsing habits. And and they are so sophisticated. The the people making these things uh, are getting paid a lot of money to make them super smart. So uh, like they've got the thing where they put one pixel on the screen. You don't even see it. The tracker that's one pixel size. I mean, they've got all these different tricks up their sleeves. It's really uh, can be frustrating if you want to... Um, you know, if you want to avoid this stuff. So, so the good news is there's some tools to protect you. Um, uh, I use ghostry on my Mac. I, I love it. Uh, it's at, um, I don't know what the, I will put the link in the show notes, but it's G H O S T E R Y. And it's a plugin that works in Safari. It's a little ghost kind of cute. And whenever you go to a new website in the lower right corner, it gives you a list of everything that's being tracked on your website. It tells you the different plugins that are being used and the cookies that are being tracked. And it gives you the ability to very easily turn those off and on. And there'll be some websites where you leave them all on. Like when I go to Squarespace, I, I have Ghostery ignore that page and just give me whatever Squarespace needs to make its magic work. But when I go to LL Bean or whatever website I like to shop at, I, um, I don't necessarily want them to know that much about me so I can turn some of it off. Um, And, you know, there are also ways that you can block ads on the Internet now. Um, There are a bunch of different ad blockers. The ones that I like, there's there's ad block and there's ad block plus. I'm not kind of sure. I think they both do do similar things, but those those are two good options. And that opens up really a whole um, area ball of, you know, wax. I mean, the uh, I feel like people who make their living writing on the internet need to serve up the ads to keep the bills paid because, because consumers don't clearly want to pay subscriptions for them. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of feel the same way about, you know, skipping all the ads on a podcast. You at least listen to see what the sponsors are saying so you can help please support the show. Um, uh, so I, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, when you get to the whack-a-mole type ads where they're super annoying or these these websites where you have to literally click on an ad before you can see the content, I, f- I feel like that's just like, that's the reason these services exist and it makes it bad for everybody else. But when it's a, a website that's being, um, you know, kind of an adult about their advertising, I, I don't think you should block them. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I kind of prefer Adblock Plus is because it does have a setting 
where, and I don't know who decides this or how they decide this, but it will keep quote unquote non-obtrusive ads. Um, you know, and I don't know. It's it's where does the fine line? You know, if you block every ad, you, like you said, you're you're not supporting you know the the websites that you visit or the content producers. But you know, at some point, people have started blocking ads because the ads have gotten so out of line. But not all of them are. So just be an adult about it. Yeah. One of the things I do is I, I specifically, um, you know, stop using these services on specific sites that are not obtrusive. Yeah. You can whitelist any site on any one of these services where you say, okay, this website always get give me everything. So in any way, uh, so just uh, when you're online, private browsing is not private. <laughs> so don't think it is. And um and uh, we're going to talk in a minute, though, about some ways to get around that and, um, and you know, be aware of how much tracking is going on because there is a lot. The one thing that I do want to talk about, because you mentioned it, it is not necessarily with, with web browsers, but you mentioned about these little one pixel white ads that can happen or um, trackers that can happen in the background. They tend to happen particularly with email. Um, one of the things that you can do both on the Mac and iOS is you can disable um, images and HTML messages. And I have done that now, and I do not load images in HTML messages unless I've actually, um, you know, hit a button to to load those images, and it keeps those trackers from being automatically loaded. And most mail clients have that setting. Yeah. So it's not hard to turn off. Just go into preferences and just about any of the email apps that we've talked about in the show, and you'll be able to turn that off. Okay. So what about getting around some of this stuff? I mean, we've talked about the fact that once you get on the internet, the, everybody's tracking you. How can we avoid it? Um, the onion router is an interesting way. Tor is probably how you're, you're most commonly familiar with it. Um, it is a browsing software that allows you to search um, or to surf the web anonymously. Uh, you can find more information over it at torproject.org. Uh, this, this is another one where I'm aware of it. I, I don't personally use it. I think it kind of it, it's kind of like file sharing services. It tends to have somewhat negative connotations because people associate it with bad things happen happening on the internet or people using it for more nefarious purposes. But there there can be legitimate reasons for for wanting to use this type of service. But there, but the another alternative, which is less hassle um, and something I use all the time, is DuckDuckGo, and that's a search engine. That is an alternative to Google. And getting back to the whiteboard, number one on their list is we're not going to track you. You know, Google, one of the reasons Google works so well is because it does know so much about you. It makes the search engine results better and a lot of the other stuff they do possible. Whereas DuckDuckGo is saying, we're just going to give you excellent search results, but, but, you know, we will never know what you searched or what you found. And um, now it is a option on iOS to make as your default browser. It's an option on the Mac. Uh, I was using it before even it was a default option, but it's pretty great. And they run everything through their filter. Like one of the tricks people don't realize is if you're in DuckDuckGo and you really want a Google search, you can bang it. You just hit um, exclamation point Google and then your search. And then DuckDuckGo runs the search for you through its anonymous server. So you're still getting the benefit of a Google search. But DuckDuckGo also has some additional, they call them bangs. You know, you hit the exclamation point plus something and cool stuff happens. Um, I think it's it's not only is it great in terms of security, it's a good alternative to Google. Uh, I don't think it's as good, though. I mean, in terms of search results, 
um, Google has a lot of time and energy and information about you to make some really amazing results. And sometimes if I run comparisons, I'm not quite as happy with DuckDuckGo, but it's good enough for me. And I feel like, again, the security versus convenience, this one weighs in a little bit more on security. Now you can install DuckDuckGo. In fact, if you go to their website, they'll they'll give you a little pop-up um, as your default search engine in Safari or wherever you, you know, whatever your web browser of choice is. Yeah, it, well, that's been possible on the Mac for a while, but it's just recently that we got that on iOS where Apple has included it as, a, as an option for your default browser or default search. I want to thank our longtime sponsor, the Omni Group, and talk a little bit about OmniGraffle. So OmniGraffle is a tool for creating precise, beautiful graphics, whether it be websites, wireforms, electrical systems, family trees, maps, Anything that you want to do can come to life in OmniGraffle. No matter whether you are a professional artist or graphic designer or just the casual mapper and diagrammer, you will find something new and useful in OmniGraffle. What makes OmniGraffle exceptional is that it is so easy to get started, but it has plenty of power user features available for you when you need it. With OmniGraffle, you can create pretty much anything. And I'll tell you, I absolutely am no artist and no designer. But I have created some pretty amazing things using OmniGraffle, especially in my law practice, which you wouldn't think would be a graphics-heavy practice. But particularly when you're mapping something out for someone or trying to diagram a family tree or show how multiple things are related to each other, OmniGraffle is a great tool to do that. OmniGraffle is available for both Mac and iOS, and the iOS app especially is great when you want to just be able to get your hands on something and really feel like you're actually touching your work. With OmniGraffle, it's very easy to take just your quick little doodles and diagramming and turn them into professional pieces and then quickly export them to a number of file formats, including PNG, PDF, and others. And of course, no matter what platform you're working on, whether it be Mac or iOS, all of your documents can be managed quickly and easily through OmniGraffle's document browser and synced across your multiple devices using Omni's signature OmniPresence service which is a secure and free way to keep all of your documents in sync built right into OmniGraffle. OmniGraffle is available in both standard and pro versions, and it's available both on Mac and iOS. So you can learn more about these apps by heading over to omnigroup.com or pick up copies in the respective app stores. Omni has done something really unique with their Mac App Store pricing. So you can download the app for free in the Mac App Store, and that comes with a free, fully functional two-week trial. If you decide that you love it and can't live without it, you can buy the app using an in-app purchase, which will either unlock the full features of the standard or pro version, depending on what you decide is right for you. You can find more information about the apps either in the Mac or iOS app stores or over at omnigroup.com. Thanks, Omni, for their continued support of Mac Power users. All right. Um, we've talked in the past about securing your Mac and securing iOS. We've uh, given entire shows to the subject. But, you know, it's 2017. Maybe we should just update briefly some of the, the key points to make here. Let's start with your Mac. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things that you can do to... to um to protect your Mac. And again, we've gone through most of these, but probably the single best thing that you can do to protect your Mac is to use File Vault. Now, um, I believe is, is it, it's not default yet. It's still not default on, uh, on Macs, but we're getting closer. Um, but I think it's, it should be mandatory if you have a mobile Mac, if you have a laptop. And I would, I would almost say at this point, it should be default on any desktop Mac. 
possibly a slight exception if you're you're using something exclusive as a media server or exclusively as a server. But um, any Mac that you have data on that you don't want to fall into somebody's hands, which is probably most of your Macs, I would turn on Fileball. Yeah, I feel like this is the one, like, two-factor authentication. It's just, you got to give me a really good excuse not to use it. Because in this case, the security versus privacy balance, it, it's it's super secure. And there's, I'm sorry, the security versus convenience balance, it's super secure. And it is there's almost no inconvenience attached to it. It used to be these things would slow down your system when you try to do whole disk encryption, but now it's, I can't tell a difference. I mean, I, once in a while I'll see a, a web article which you know, rates the difference in milliseconds or something. I don't care. Um, uh, like Katie was saying, not only have I enabled it on my laptop, I have also enabled it on my iMac. If someone steals this thing off my desk one day, they aren't getting anything off of it. And it just took me, all of about two minutes to enable it. Now, File Vault will encrypt your boot drive, but you still need to manually encrypt any um, external hard drives that you attach to your Mac. Um, now, you want to be careful about this if you're using these cross-platform or if you're sending these drives back and forth to other people. But um, I don't do that often, and I certainly don't do that with non-Macs. So I have encrypted just, I think, every drive that I use with my Macs. And it's really easy to do. You just plug the, the drive in. You can reformat it if you want, if you're, you're doing that in one, you want to get some data off of it. But um, you just right-click in the finder and, and encrypt it, and it will take care of it. Now, do make sure that you have a backup of that data on it, just in case anything happens while you're trying to encrypt it on the fly. Um, but otherwise, that will encrypt the data on that drive. And if you plug it into that Mac and you do not save the password to the keychain, which you may or may not want to do, um, it will require you to put a password in anytime you plug that drive into that into a different Mac. And that's where you use your password manager to solve that problem. Uh, I think it is especially important to encrypt backup drives because if you are backing up all of your data to another hard drive, um, you want to make absolutely sure that this hard drive now contains all of your data. It should be encrypted. And, and Apple really over the last few years has made it just silly easy to do this. It's almost a checkbox. Like I know with the, um, with some of this, I mean, literally you check one box and it's encrypted. Um, find my Mac. Remember find my iPhone, that great service that first showed up on iOS that allows you to remotely lock your device and uh, wipe the data. I don't think a lot of people know, but you can do that with a Mac too. Yeah. And I think you should turn it on. Um, I know that some people are nervous about having Find My Mac turned on because it could potentially, if it's compromised, let somebody wipe your Mac. And I know this happened to Matt Hahn. But um, I think with two-factor authentication in place and other things in place now, it makes it a lot harder for that to happen inadvertently. And I think it just, it allows you a lot of power to remotely lock a lost device or more importantly, to remotely wipe a lost device. Auto lock, you know, you've got the ability to have your computer lock itself after a set period of time, especially if you work around other people. It's a really good idea. I even do it with my home computers. I just don't want them unlocked and unattended. Yeah, and that's in the security preference panes where you can set it to auto lock on sleep or screensaver. Now, the trick to that is you want to make sure that you've then got your screensaver or your energy saver preferences set that that auto lock is triggered after a reasonable period of time. Yes. I, and also, you know, the convenience factor is getting better on this stuff. Like my iMac, I walk up to it and my watch unlocks it pretty reliably almost, you know, every time I need it. And um, 
that that's all that's really convenient and the only way that reason that's working is because the watch is on my wrist and it's been unlocked by me so this stuff doesn't have to be super inconvenient for you the other thing i want to mention is that if you are using a shared computer uh an on a home iMac that is used by your family or a computer that you let your kids or your grandkids access, I would say to be especially careful with computers that are shared. And I encourage you to have separate user accounts for separate users in your household and for you to log out of your primary account or your account in situations where other users can or need to access that computer. Um, you know, I know my um, members of my family have these shared computers and, you know, we'll tell the grandkids or the kids, oh, yeah, just go back in my office and use my computer. And I'm going, oh, you know, not that those people who are using it would necessarily do anything improper, but you just don't, you know, intentionally improper, but you just don't know what they're doing back there or what they're doing to compromise your security. Um, I know uh, I've got uh, my, my grandparents' computers that I maintain. I've got two little brat cousins. And, uh, hopefully they don't listen to the show. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the other cousins, by the way. I'm pretty sure they don't, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that that uh, because they wanted to download a game, ended up changing my grandparents' Apple ID. Yeah, great. And I'm great. Ju- and of course, you know, a month later when I needed to do something, I'm like, I know what your Apple ID is, but that's not it. That's not working. Yeah. And then in the month... In the intervening month, your parents bought apps and other stuff on the other ID, and now the madness begins. Yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, just just lock it out, create a separate guest account or a guest kids account or grandkids account or whatever it is, and yeah. Okay, what about iOS? What I mean, we, we did this one recently too, but, you know, just in summary, turn on a password for the love of all that is holy. Please turn on a password and consider making it more than four digits. You know, it's not that hard to type another two digits in and make it exponentially harder to break in. Or if you're really wearing the tinfoil hat, make it an alphanumeric password. I, I think that's that's very important. Not only must you have a password, it, it really needs to be stronger than four digits at this point. Um, Touch ID is great. I love using Touch ID. It makes it a lot easier now for people to have stronger passwords. But I also think you need to to go back and review the rules of how Touch ID works and when your Touch ID is disabled. So, for example, Touch ID doesn't work after a phone is powered off and powered back on. And that can be a good thing. So if you're in a situation where you think, um, you know, your your, your fingerprints can be not, I don't want to say compromised like someone chopped your finger off, but uh, where you can be compelled to unlock your phone with a fingerprint Turn it off. If a man with a uniform and a badge is there saying, give me your thumb to unlock your phone. Turn it off. Um, I mean, we'll talk more about that later. Um, but that's the easiest thing is just turn your phone off. And then the next time you turn it on, it will um, it will require a fingerprint. Um, your phone also. It will not. I'm sorry. It will not. It will not. It will not unlock with just a fingerprint. It will require that password, which will be a little easier than saying, hand me your give, give me your hand and let me unlock this. So. Um, the other thing that I've done recently is I have actually turned on the feature to set my iPhone to auto and race after failed password attempts. I would use the caution that it might not be good if you have young children. But there's a delay. I mean, if, if they start getting the password wrong repeatedly, it actually delays you. So they can't put 10 attempts in in one minute and and, un, and erase your phone. And kids, the attention span in kids is, is you know, seconds. So the first delay shows up, they're going to move on to the next shiny thing. If anybody out there has ever had their kids erase their phone because of this feature on, let us know in the Facebook or send us a note because I, I, I suspect there aren't very many people. That my, are. my aunt has. Oh, really? Well, 
Her, her <laughs> kids are wrong. persistent. <laughs> well, I, I do like the feature. I, I like it uh, because it makes it much harder for someone to to get my data. And I like it just because I grew up watching spy movies. And I love the idea that the data will burn itself after 10 attempts. Uh, same thing. Find, we talked about Find My Mac. Use Find My iPhone. You know, you can lock the device when it gets uh, lost or stolen. You can remote wipe it if you have to. You know, turn on auto lock. I mean, all these things are basics, but but you should be doing those, especially uh, if you want to protect your privacy. All right, we save this next part for the end. Yes, for a reason. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the potential controversial part. So, David, as you know, you and I are both traveling. Um, I th- oh, or maybe we already have because we're pre-recording some of these shows. I think I think we're traveling the week that the show comes out. We're, we're going. Sure, it was nice seeing you, Katie. It was. It was great to see you too. Uh, we are going to Chicago, having an old, amazing Mac Power Users meetup. It was great. The food was amazing. Thank you so much. But um, especially if you're traveling abroad, and I am getting ready to go to um, uh, Amsterdam, the Netherlands, um, Holland, Belgium, you know, just a great, great trip I'm really excited about. And I started thinking about this. Uh, There's a very interesting article from CNN that I'm going to link in the show notes, uh, where people are now asking the question in the world that we live in, what rights do you have at a border? And you have a lot fewer rights at a border, both in the U.S. and abroad. And and we say in the U.S., and, and that's true whether you're a U.S. citizen or whether you're not a U.S. citizen, uh, but particularly if you are traveling abroad to a different country um, where you can be forced to hand over all of your stuff and all of your devices um, and and be subject to inspection. You know, both Americans and foreign visitors um, are are not subject to probable cause. You you know, you just they can hand over your stuff and and let me see it. And a lot of people are now raising the question of, do I have to hand over my phone and my computers and my tablets at the border? And uh, it, it's kind of a gray area. And we're certainly not going to give you legal advice on this podcast, but. Uh, in the um, in the current climate that we're in, it's um, it's getting to be a thing. Yeah, and there's there's you know the civil civil liberties union now is getting involved, and there's lots of web articles. But as you enter the U.S., even as a citizen, I think it's something people don't realize. Um, they can ask you to unlock your phone, and then, as I understand it, take in another room. Which once somebody has your unlocked phone in another room, you just have to assume all of that data is no longer private. Yeah. Um, border agents are allowed to swipe through and, and we're going to say phone, but it can be phone. It can be tablet. It can be computer, you know, browse through, look through documents on a phone or a laptop, um, even copy the data on your device for further inspection later. It's a, uh, it's pretty scary. Um, if you're a U.S. citizen coming into the U.S., you may have slightly more protections than you would if you are uh, a foreign national or um, a, a, just a, a green card holder, but it, it it's still um, it's still pretty scary. And even if you're a, a citizen traveling to another country, um, you know, or not a citizen of that country traveling in, into another country, uh, you know, always always fair game as well. So uh, it's um it's a, it was an interesting article, and I I'm putting a link to show notes and, and suggest that you read it. I don't know that it's going to make you feel any better, but um, it was one of the things that that kind of prompted. Uh, some of the show. Yeah. And I think this is an emerging thing. I don't think it's going to get easier. I think it's going to get harder. So 
be aware. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you to go to jail for us. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, uh, my phone will be turned off the next time I cross a border. So at least I make it a little harder. And what would you do? I mean, I don't know what I would do to tell you the truth. Um, if they told me um, I need you need to unlock your phone, I guess I would just have to say no because I've got client data on there and I'd have to go into your box for a while. <laughs> well, let me let me tell you some some possible solutions. Um, one is I think you need to fir- first I would say in all things be reasonable, um, and and don't create a problem. Don't don't be the problem. Um, and, and most people, this is not going to happen to don't draw attention. To, I'm not trying to give advice to terrorists. Could, could that, could this podcast be construed as, uh, aiding and betting? You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to tell people be, be reasonable. Um, one of, one of the things that I'm going to do is I am going to turn my phone off and also not have it out with me as I'm going through the border. You know, maybe some of that is, uh, out of sight, out of mind. You know, if my phone's put away and in my bag, is, is someone less likely to see it and take interest in it? Probably. You know, if I'm if I'm being um, uh, what what is a podcast safe word that I can use? Um, if if I'm being belligerent and um, uh, flippant in line and those types of things, I, yeah, I think you're probably more likely to get to get pulled out and and questioned. Um, the other thing that I would say in general is don't take anything through a border that you don't mind giving up. Um, is is probably what it ultimately comes down to. And I think to answer your question, David, um, I would tell you to consider deleting that data on your device. Um, some people are talking about, um, do, you, do you consider deleting your password manager? Do you consider deleting your, um, your email? Um, um, you know, if you're on a plane before the plane lands or before you cross the border, you know, deactivating those, those email accounts and taking them off the phone uh, and other, you know, maybe deleting Dropbox or your other cloud service provider um, before before you you go through the border, so that if someone wants to look at your phone, that that data is no longer on the device. Um, the downside to that is you're going to need to have a plan for re-downloading and accessing that data once you get through. So I would tell you to thoroughly test this beforehand. That um, you know if you're going through with just your iPhone and you delete one password from your iPhone, how do you how do you get it back on? <laughs> I, you know, it's, I'm just sitting on my hands right now. I'm so frustrated. It's, I mean, the truly bad guys aren't going to be carrying incriminating data over the border. It's like so many of us have to deal with this stuff. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll stop. <laughs> stop. We said we weren't going to get political, David. Yeah, I know. I know. Another point, though, I heard from a listener last year who works for a company that sends him into many countries across the globe. And he said things are so... Um, they're so paranoid at his work, maybe with good reason, that when he goes to certain countries, they literally have uh, disposable laptops that they go into the country with that they take in with them. And, you know, they're clean when they go into the country. And I think when they come back, they get wiped and, you know, start over. Well, I mean, again, I think this is another, um, uh, you know, another reason. Although data you put in the cloud may not necessarily be secure, that may be your way to 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 be a bridge for for getting data back and forth. But you know, again, I was just thinking about it. If I deleted one password from my iPhone and my iPad and my computer to go through a border, it could be hard to get it back on. Well, I, I guess I would I would close saying that we do certain subjects on the show where we're like, okay, we've covered that now, we're good, and we probably don't need to go back to that for a long time. I think the security thing is going to be evolving and it's something that we are going to come back to on a fairly, you know, regular basis on the Mac power users, because I don't think it's going to get any easier. 
Yeah. And and these are all things that I'm thinking about and things that we're going to have to work through, you know, security versus convenience. Um, And, you know, honestly, to some degree, just, you know, things that I'm thinking about is if someone asked me to to hand over my phone, am I going to hand it to them? Honestly, probably. Um, You know, I'm I'm probably going to take my work email off of it beforehand to protect client confidences, but I don't know that I want to get stuck in a at a border somewhere, you know? Well, uh, so, so just winding back, we've gone pretty deep on some stuff here. I mean, you can, uh, some of the tools we've talked about are very secure methods to, to keep your, your tinfoil hat on. And, uh, you know, I even have a little bit of an issue with calling it tinfoil hat episode because some of this stuff may actually be really justified. Uh, but even if you're not going that far down the rabbit hole, I would say, you know, be using two-factor authentication. Look seriously at some of these VPN services. I mean, there are some minimal impact tasks you can take to dramatically increase the privacy of your um, of your and the security of your data. So you should check that out. There's a couple additional posts that uh, we'd like to point you to. Uh, our old pal Gabe Weatherhead, who's a guest on the show, wrote a um, an interesting post. We're going to put at Mac Drifter. We'll put the link in the show notes. And also uh, Medium uh, had a nice post called How to Encrypt Your Life in Less Than an Hour that I thought was a nice summary of some of the steps you can take. So we'll go ahead and put those links in the show notes as well. All right. Well, I think um, I think that's going to wrap us up for today. I'm sure the discussion will continue and you can continue that on our Facebook group, uh, which you can find at facebook.com slash group slash Mac Power Users. Uh, you can also uh, send us information, feedback at MacPowerUsers.com or the shows on Twitter at MacPowerUsers or David is at MacSparky and I'm at Katie Floyd. Thanks to our sponsors, MindNode, 1Password, Eero and Omni Group. And we will see you all next week.